Sir Jim Rose is a consultant to the government on nursery and primary education and produced a report into the primary curriculum. He's also reviewed the evidence and made recommendations on the identification and teaching of children with dyslexia. I think all the evidence is pointing to, as it were, dyslexia as a continuum. And for some children, living with dyslexia is probably the best that we can manage. That's not to say that they can't be helped to read, write and so forth. But I don't think it's one of these situations where there's a cure-all, a magic bullet. It must be obviously a neurological condition, but if it is a neurological disorder of the kind which I think the evidence is now pointing to, in the inability to deal with the phonological processing of sounds, then it's not easily, as it were, corrected in that physical sense. So it is a matter of how we adjust resources and all the rest of it to help those children as best we can. I think what we've now got is a much better perspective on the typically developing brain, if you like, and how the brain learns to read. Maggie Snowling and Charles Hume have already made very clear in their book that we should look at this from a developmental perspective, which seems to me to say that we should first of all consider how, as it were, typically developing children learn to read. And in that context, we can then begin to think in terms of how we both identify dyslexia and, in a sense, get a look at the fine-grained difficulties that children are having within it. By far the best developed theory is that it arises from a phonological deficit. And this dominant phonological deficit theory of dyslexia attributes the child reading difficulties to an inability to establish the phonological pathways that obviously other children can develop. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful for me, I know, but it, um, it does seem to me to be very sound ground from which to move forward. How well does Sir Jim think these ideas match up with the way literacy is currently taught? The provision that we've been used to stems, I think, from the national strategies when they were introduced in around about 1998. Structures like the Literacy Hour came into being. What we were quickly developing was this idea that there should be three waves of provision. And wave one was described as quality-first teaching for typically developing children, the idea being, of course, that you know, they should receive excellent teaching of literacy, within that, of course, the teaching of reading. And it was from within that matrix that one would be able to identify those children who were not doing so well as others and begin to think about the reasons why that was happening. Wave two provision was thought of as being the first wave of intervention, and this was variously, uh, I think, targeted at children who may have been, say, missing school, lengthy absences and so forth, and the general term catch-up, I think, came into being. So, in a nutshell, that was very much catch-up provision. And then wave three, of course, was for those children who we would, I suppose, more classically think of as being in need of resources for special educational needs and the expertise that's needed for much more specific learning difficulties. So as a, a structure for intervention, it seems to me that there was a certain logic in that that still holds true. The issue, however, is can we 
absolutely ensure that mainstream provision obviously hits the high quality note that it requires and that same expertise in terms of the quality which is required for children at the extreme end of reading difficulties, not least dyslexic difficulties, is also in place. And I think what we've got now is an interesting situation where we're asking all the right questions as to just what that expertise for Wave 3 should be and look like, how it should be provided, and what support teachers and schools need to build that expertise. We've had, as everyone might imagine, very interesting discussions on so-called co-occurring difficulties with dyslexia. And I think our view is that where these things, for example, short-term memory, impacts really seriously on a child's ability to read, we need to think about the broader context as to how that might be looked at and indeed improved. So the simple view of reading appeals very strongly in this respect and indeed in many others, and people will, I hope, by now understand the two dimensions of that. So language comprehension and word recognition uh, intersect. Both are important, and this is not a linear model. You don't do one and then the other. The whole idea is to make sure they're both robustly supported from birth, I suppose. And if we're talking about something like short-term memory, then that which is now being studied and quite a lot is known, I think, about in terms of uh, language comprehension, needs to be thoroughly embedded in whatever literacy programmes we're talking about. So I would expect a very strong recognition that speaking and listening, some people prefer to call it oracy, is well-developed and given as much power, as it were, as possible from the word go. So if we look even at the primary curriculum review, much turns on on that because all the research is telling us that, in fact, we can do something about boosting children's language facility at the oral level. So that, that must only be to the good, reaching right into how we're hoping dyslexia will also be overcome. I want to stress we want very high quality systematic phonic work going on and all that that means with a particular perspective on that I think about dyslexia. At the same time we must not forget that you know we're talking sometimes about very young children and the idea of enriching their vocabulary, dealing with aspects of comprehension which will help them remember Uh, is extremely important. And I think that message is getting across to schools now very strongly, and we see some really exciting work going on in that direction. Sir Jim Rose also points to an interesting link between the processes of reading and writing and goes on to discuss the progress in our understanding of dyslexia. I think it was quite a surprise to some when the viewers expressed that... uh, Encoding is the reverse of decoding. So we decode for reading and we encode for writing. 
and it was a you know, very straightforward and simple explanation that was being put forward there. Whereas in the first case, the text is in front of you. You don't have to invent it in that sense. It's there. It's ready, pre- prepared, and you simply decode. How very much more difficult it is when you have to come to encode and there's nothing there except what's between your ears, as it were, and you have to recall those things and so forth. I mean, that immediately, I think, should ring a bell that there will be children who find difficulties at the dyslexic level harder when it comes to writing than probably, even though it's difficult for them, they find in reading. So this is all, for me, part of this cognitive mix that we need to make sure is better understood. And uh, again, we're seeing interesting, I think, work in those directions. Whatever else we do, we should remember that decoding and encoding are joined at the hip. It actually helps children if we can get them to understand that one is the reverse of the other. And on, along with that, and we've had some quite interesting debates in our um, advisory group about this, is what, what we are terming multisensory experience and again you know we come back to young children and anything we can do using mnemonics and all the rest of it to mimic sounds or make the thing fun and reinforcing can only be to the good of all children but I think particularly for those who have got the developmental difficulties that we're talking about with with regard to dyslexia. It's not so very long ago when we were kind of in the position of being blindfolded and feeling ourselves around a black box called the brain. I think that's changed remarkably in the last 10 years. I mean, if you look at the work of the Wellcome Trust, uh, what human snowling have done and so forth, many others, we're now much more confident, I think, about how the brain learns, the cognitive aspects of all of this, um, which underpin, or don't, as the case may be, the models that we have been using. And I think that sorting process of you know, what works and is consistent with pure research, put it that way, in, in neurological studies and so forth, is very interesting at this point in time. So there, there is a sort of consistency between the pure and the applied, which I find really quite refreshing. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.